Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. All right, we're going on with Romans. We've been teaching from the book of Romans, and I'm going to be dealing with the last half of chapter 6. But just before we do that, I do need to come back to something that we didn't say. I, really, I don't think we said anything about this when we were in chapter 5, but it is important today. Sadly, there is a doctrine that is growing in momentum, and throughout the last 2,000 years, uh, this doctrine, uh, it's a heresy uh, that has stuck its head up in the, in the body of Christ uh, repeatedly throughout the last 2,000 years. It seems to be growing again. Uh, it's called ultimate reconciliation. Some refer to it as universal salvation. But the basic idea is there are those people out there, and I'm, I'm going to name a couple of names. Uh, I'm not judging their salvation in any way, shape, or form. However, if you pick up a book by some of these people, I just want you to understand what you need to be looking for. Rob Bell is one in his book, Love Wins. He teaches that there is no hell and that Jesus died and everybody gets the benefit of salvation because Jesus died. Other people teach uh, in this ultimate reconciliation that hell does exist, but it's only temporary and that uh, depending on how bad you are in your natural life, that determines how long you stay in hell. In other words, Hitler will be there longer than your next door neighbor who just doesn't serve Jesus. The problem with both of these things is they're not true. <laughs> and the other problem is they, we're dealing with people's eternal existence here. We're dealing with people's eternal relationship with God, which is way beyond the blink of an eye in this life. Now, I want to give you two verses real fast. One is in Romans, and that's why we're bringing this up. We covered chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says this. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Those people who erroneously believe the idea that everybody gets saved no matter what choice you make in this life tend to use a verse like this because it uses the phrase all. Another verse that is commonly used is 1 Corinthians 15, 22 that says, As all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Again, if you take that all by itself. Now, how many already understand that the problem here is context? Context, context. If you read the verses before and after, you will get the truth of what's being said. And here is the missing piece of logic. And sadly, it is really ultimately all that matters. But the most important thing that matters is what people like this leave out. And that is the word faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8. You know it. For by grace are we saved through faith. So the fact that Jesus died for us, paid the penalty of sin, accrues to us, the benefit comes to us when we choose to put our dependence, our trust, our confidence, our faith in what he did. The fact that I give you a million dollars, but you never go to the bank to withdraw it, you're never going to get the benefit of it. Now that's a poor example, but you understand what I'm talking about. 
So when we read what Paul has to say here in the book of Romans, we see that really you could sum up everything Paul is talking about in Romans by this word faith. We've talked about the faith of Abraham and the fact that Abraham had faith and that empowered him to obey. He didn't obey first. He had faith first. He believed God meant what he, meant what he said. We have already covered chapter 3. Romans 3.22 says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Not to all, but to all who believe. So when you match that with these other verses, we understand, yes, Jesus died for everybody. And everybody comes to him the same way, by faith that he did, in fact, do this for us. So now we want to go to the last half of the book of, uh, or chapter 6 of the book of Romans. And I'm going to read quickly through it so we get a good uh, context here. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation, by the way. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? That word choose is so important. Hang on to that. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Notice that you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all of this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteousness so that you will become holy. We are becoming something by the work of God's righteousness inside of us. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation. I love the way this is worded. You were free from the obligation to do right. Oh, am I obligated to do right? No, you don't have to, but you get to reap the really rotten life that comes from not doing right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. What I want to address as we finish this chapter is this idea that as human beings, we cannot, in the ultimate sense, change who and what we are. You and I, by human power, do not have the ability or the power to change the nature of who and what we are. However, God has given us an ability to choose who we're going to give ownership of our life to. We cannot ultimately change ourselves. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, well, I'm, I'm, I, I can't resist that second donut, although there are times when I really can't. But, 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 however, but what I'm talking about is in the ultimate sense. 
Our DNA has been passed down from our father, Adam. The only way that's ever going to change is for us to choose to put the ownership of our lives into the hands of Jesus Christ. Then a miracle happens. Then a change and a transformation begins. And so what Paul is dealing with in the last half of this chapter is this idea of choice. Change comes by choice. And he empowers us to make choice. Now, this is important to understand because God has given to human beings an incredible power or ability. That is the power to make a choice. And, and that, that, that's, it, I mean, when you stop to think about it, it is, a, it is an amazing thing. Now, for those who may listen to this later on, I've got great friends who are five-leaf tulip Calvinists. And I know they disagree with me, and we have wonderful conversations about human choice. But I want to make it very clear to you, the choice that Adam and Eve made didn't really have to do with fruit. That was not the point. The choice they made was who are they going to believe? When the serpent, or whatever metaphor that refers to, when the devil, Satan, comes to them and tells them something that's contrary to what God has already told them, the ultimate choice was not to eat the fruit or not. The ultimate choice was, am I going to believe him or am I going to believe him? And that's what Paul is dealing with here. Are we going to believe the world and the way that we lived when we were in the world and, and, and the results of that? Or are we going to believe that God's righteousness will do something for us? You know, Adam's choice was not, you know, do I eat the apple or do I go over to the pear tree? You know, but that was not the choice. The choice was, all right, I've just been told something that is contrary to what I've learned from my father. Wouldn't it have been so different if Adam would have stopped right then and said, Father, I know you normally come at the end of the work day to talk and fellowship with us, but on this one occasion, could you come right now? I need some guidance. He could have chosen that, but he didn't. And this is what Paul is dealing with, that you and I do not have the power to be good Christ-like people by our own willpower. We don't have that, but... We can choose for his power to come alive inside of us. At the moment of temptation, we can choose. Not in our strength, not in our power, but at the moment of temptation, we can choose. Holy Spirit, I need to be filled again right now. I need for you to rise up within me and empower me. That's a choice that God has given me. I can make that choice. So Paul talks about this, and he says there are two main beliefs that produce this in us. And we're going to start with this here on this part and then end with the end. One is making the choice of what we give ourselves to. And we've read it. Paul repeatedly says you can give yourself to sin or you can give yourself to righteousness. That has to do with choice. And by the way, choice really is just another word of saying faith. If I choose to believe God is telling the truth, I'm putting my faith in God telling the truth. That's what this is all about. The second thing is what we feed will grow. What we feed will grow. I, I so love part of what you shared. In the, well, I loved it all. Sorry, that just did not come out quite right. 
There was a couple of things you said that were really great. The rest of it, eh, that's not what I meant. Please, please forgive me. But I love the testimony of one of the people that you read about, now that I've found friends who love Christ and can surround me and help me. That's one of the ways that we feed ourselves on the things that make us grow, is we interact with other believers. We share what they have in Christ, what we have in Christ. We get together here, there, home, eating, wherever. We go out and, and have coffee or we have Chai Alpha together. And we grow, and, and, and as we do that, we're, we're making a choice to feed ourselves or, or we can hang around with our old friends, and they can influence us more than we influence them. You see, once you become strong enough, you become salt and light and an influence. I love your friend who comes to Christ, and four months later, he leads somebody else to Christ. But it took just a little while for him to be the influencer and not be overly influenced himself. But that comes from feeding. What we feed will grow. Reading the Word. Trusting it to become the living word. Our worship, we've been worshiping this morning. Our worship is feeding ourselves on the things of God. And you say, well, you know, I've come to your church and it seems to me like you get stuck on one song and you just sing it over and 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 over. We do. You want to know why? Because if you want a good marriage, you better say I love you more than at the altar. Right? Right? 45 years of marriage, and the wife finally says to the husband, I'm out of here. I'm not putting up with this anymore. And he says, well, why not? She said, 45 years. You don't tell me you love me. You don't express your love at all. I'm not putting up with this. And he said, honey, I told you 45 years ago in that church that I loved you, and if it ever changed, I'd let you know. No, no, no. Worship is feeding on his love, reminding ourselves of love. And what we feed on will cause us to grow. Whatever you feed will grow. Verse 15, chapter 6, let's look at it. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Now, you know, Paul started chapter 6 with the same question, but he used a different word. Here he says, can we? go on sinning. But in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, should we go on sinning? That's interesting because really the answer is a little different. As a Christian, can you sin? Yes. Should you? If you want a rotten life, sure. Right? Because in the new covenant, the law of sowing and reaping still works. And it works, it works, not because you and I are so great and wonderful, but it works because the power to choose has been given by God. You and I have an amazing power to choose. And that's why sowing and reaping is so very important. Of course, Paul's response is, can we go on sinning? No, of course not. Certainly we should not do that because sin brings immediate consequences. Now, I want you to understand that we as a church do fully and wholeheartedly believe that the death of Jesus Christ paid for all sin once and for all. And that if you put your faith in that, two things will happen. Number one, you will be forever 
forgiven for your sin. Number two, a miracle will begin inside of you that will start producing good fruit where there used to be bad fruit. But we also believe from the same New Testament scripture that if you are a child of God having been born again, each time you choose to sin, you are going to have some immediate consequences in this life that's not going to be so fun. You can treat your wife any way you want to treat her, but if you don't start loving her the way Christ loves her, you're going to have a rotten marriage, and you're not going to be able to blame God on that. That's my fault. That's my choice. Now, can I do that by my own power? No, but I can choose. Father, I'm choosing right now. I'm choosing right now to love my wife. Empower me. See, it's like going to the doctor. Well, didn't I see you a month ago? Yes, sir. And you still have the same thing? Yes, sir. Well, I don't understand. Didn't you take all that medicine? No, sir. Well, then don't blame me. That'll be $200. Thank you. But those immediate consequences are the ones that we have to deal with. Now, the law of sowing and reaping, we know it. It's in the new covenant. Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatever A, a man reaps whatever he sows. And one sows to, if one sows to please the spirit or to please the flesh. That's the decision that we've got to make. Am I going to sow sinfully to the flesh or to the spirit? Then there's consequences that come from that. And especially when we talk about what the kingdom of God for us truly is. When Jesus was asked repeatedly by the Pharisees about the kingdom of God, he gave them several parables. When you put it all together, the Apostle Paul interprets those parables about the kingdom of God in very succinctly for us in Romans chapter 14, uh, which we will get to next summer, I think, when we go through the rest of Romans, verse 17. And this is what it says. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Now, the reason, the context for that is that if you back up in that chapter, there's this ongoing argument about whether a Christian should eat meat offered to idols or is that tainted meat because it was originally given in worship to idols. Paul said, those are not gods. You can eat it if you want. It's fine. If it bothers your brother, uh, then, then consider not doing it because love will give up its own personal liberty. So now he says this. The kingdom of God is not about what you eat or don't eat, drink or don't drink. But this is the kingdom of God righteousness, peace, and joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. So as a child of God, if I choose sin, if I choose to disobey, then I am going to suffer in my peace. I'm going to suffer in my joy. I am not going to have my sense of righteousness. Because the kingdom of God is made up of these things which come to us. Now, eternally, I've been made righteous in Christ. But there is more to life than that, especially when we talk about the rewards that will be coming to us after our death. So we make this decision. Now, let's go on down to verse, uh, uh, to verse uh, 16. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. Now, in the beginning, I told you that this idea of choice, choice, I can't ultimately change myself, but I can choose to invite the power that can change me. That is the choice that I have. So again, he talks about choice. Do, don't you realize that you become a slave? Now, Paul is using the term slave differently than what we typically think. This is a voluntary slavery. 
This is not slavery where you've been taken captive, that kind of... This is a voluntary slavery. It's a slavery that is based on human choice. Thank you. I know you were all thinking that, but he spoke for you. I understand that. All right. Don't you realize that you become a slave of whatever you choose to obey? You say, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, you just told me that I don't have the power within me to obey God in every way. That's not the obedience he's talking about. The obedience he's talking about is you choose to obey in going to God when you need the help you can't muster up. You draw near to him at the moment of temptation. That's the choice to obey when we draw near to him at the moment of temptation. You can be a slave to sin, he says, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. You see, the choice is, I want you to be the owner of my life. I want you to be the empowerer of my life. I don't think that's a word, but it is now empowerer. Uh, it's in there somewhere. That it's, we're, again, we're talking about choice. And that's how the grace of God works. That's how these things work. You can be a slave to sin, leads to death. You can choose to obey God. The choice we make about what we feed on gives that very thing power to control us. If we choose to feed on things that we know are unhealthy for us, we're giving that very thing power to control us. Let's choose righteousness. Let's choose the gift of God. That has been given to us freely, but results in internal change. We cannot change our nature. Our spiritual DNA has been passed down from Adam, but we can choose who we belong to now. And Paul uses this concept of ownership again and again. When Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, you believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead and you confess with your mouth, Christ is Lord. That confession is about ownership. Lordship is who owns you. Do you own yourself? Does the devil own you? Or are you going to make the choice to give the ownership of your life over to Jesus? Jesus is Lord. I choose for him to be the owner of my life. And as the owner of my life, he does a really good job of taking care of what he owns. He keeps his equipment well-oiled. Oh, there's a Holy Ghost analogy, but I don't have time to <laughs> be oily in Jesus' name. Verse 18, now you are free from your slavery to sin and become slaves to righteous living. Remember, this is slavery by choice. I want to choose to be a slave to righteous living. Now he says, because of the weakness of your human nature, verse 19, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourself be slaves to impurity. You let yourself, hear those words, and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. There's an amazing process that happens here. The very thing my heart wants to be in my relationship with God is holy. 
But the very thing that my human nature can never make me is holy. So God has given me the ability to choose for his spirit to take ownership of my life. But that choice begins to produce holy living. Sin has power. But righteousness has more power. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. That's not just a charismaniac, holy ghoster thing we say when we're praying. That's a lifestyle. I live a lifestyle of believing that the righteousness of Christ that's in me is greater than the temptation of sin. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and become slaves to God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness. Listen, in, in, in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come up and receive prayer. In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity, if you, if you wish, to come up and our prayer team and spiritual gifts people are going to be waiting up here. They're going to pray for you. Now, there's a choice there. See, there's a choice there. Say, well, I've heard this is really good. I'll think about it, and I'm going to go home. And that's okay. But there's also a choice to say, you know what? I, I, I want to I feed on this a little bit more. I want to get with somebody, and I want to pray about this because I want to offer myself. Why? Because I want the choices I make to lead to holiness. Where I'm eternally holy, I want my daily life to be holy. For the wages of sin is death, Paul says here, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One thing I want to leave you with is this. The concept of sinner and saint, both of these words are used freely in the New Testament, sinner and saint. Always keep in mind that when the apostolic writers use the word sinner in the New Testament, they're not talking about committing sins. They're not talking about someone who does sin. They're talking about the state of being of someone who is not a child of God. That is a sinner. James 3.2 says, for we all stumble in many ways. So Christians do sin. But their state of being is their children of God. But a sinner, and at this point I will say, as much as I love, and I do dearly love, Martin Luther and the men and women who came through the great reformation 400 and some years ago. There's one thing that really bothers me and that is that one of the phrases that comes up in the writings of those days is that once you've put your faith in Christ's offering for us, you are now snow-covered dung. Now they meant they meant that as a compliment that you don't have to work for your salvation. But the misleading thought there is, you're still doo-doo. And you're not. Because if you have been born again, your state of being is different now. You are a new creation. Paul did not write and say, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, they still stink like, but they're covered over with white stuff. Now, now, do Christians sin? Yes. 
They do. But because it's against their nature, something in them says, that's not going to result in good stuff. That does not please the Lord. You're right, Father. I forgive. I mean, I repent of that. Wash me. Wash my, my mind. Renew my mind. So the next time around, I can make a better choice. Because my state of being is, I'm righteous in Jesus Christ. My state of being is, I have been born again with the power to become the sons of God. We choose to give ourselves to unrighteousness or righteousness. It's the whole message of this passage in, in Romans. So this is a choice that each one of us make. And what we feed will grow, good or bad. What we choose to feed ourselves on will grow. Now, here, this, this is how powerful this choice is because all of us at this moment are going to make a choice. If you've never given the ownership of your life over to Jesus, I'm going to invite you to make a choice. If you are a believer, but you're looking at areas of your life that you need more power of the Spirit to say no to, then I'm going to invite you to make a choice. Here's how powerful human choice is. The one man in the New Testament that is listed as being the most demon-possessed was a man who lived in an area called Gadarenes. He said that he was so taken over by evil spirits that he lived in the tombs with dead bodies. He stripped off his clothes every time they tried to clothe him. When they tried to tie him down, he would go berserk until he would almost kill himself and break free. When Jesus finally talked to this man, it was said that he was filled with a legion, thousands of evil spirits. As far as we can tell, the most demon-possessed person in the Bible. But here's what happens. Jesus tells his men, guys, we need to go to the town on the other side, get in the boat, let's go over. They cross the lake, they get to the other side. And the Bible says that as they land on the other side of the lake, that demon-possessed guy comes out of the tombs, comes down to the side of the lake, and throws himself at the feet of Jesus. At that moment, the demons take over, and they begin to speak through him. But for a moment, he had a choice. And the choice was, I can draw near to him, or I can go away from him. That's an incredible choice. No matter how many demons were in there saying, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. God had still given that human being a moment to say, I'm going there. I'm going to him. I don't know what's going to happen when I get there, but I'm going to him. You and I have the same choice every moment of our lives. Join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org.